Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join join us Inside Inside the the Morgue. Welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice. And the show we're dissecting today is a little bit more comedy than reality. It's a favorite of ours, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Since this show has generally shorter episodes than others that we've covered, we're going to dissect two episodes for you today. We're going to start with Season 1, Episode 4, M.E. Time, and then we'll get into Season 6, Episode 6, The Crime Scene. So the first part of our Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode is titled Emmy Time, and this opens with the team having their morning meeting and they're discussing open cases. Now, this is something very similar to what our office does. Although we don't have meetings every day, we do have Monday morning meetings occasionally where we go over all the cases that came in from the weekend. Once a month, we have pending meetings where our investigators talk about the cases that they have that are still pending for the cause of death and why. So Charles Boyle says that he has a DOA, which means dead on arrival, for those of you who don't know. He is the primary on the case, and he takes Jake Peralta and Rosa Diaz with him as his secondaries. While they're going out on this scene, Amy Santiago goes to the captain, Ray Holt, about an eyewitness that she has for one of her cases, but she says that the sketch artist for the precinct is out sick. She's basically just told to deal with the problem herself, so she goes to the sergeant, Terry Jeffords, and she asks him to step in for the artist, and he agrees and proceeds to sketch the eyewitness's description of the perpetrator. The witness says that he had dark curly hair, a neck tattoo, and brown eyes. Now, our first green flag, because forensic sketch artists actually do work with police and witnesses of crimes in order to recreate semi-realistic drawings that reflect the image of the perpetrator to the best of the witness's memory. So forensic sketch artists should be able to recreate these drawings just from a description alone. However, the difficulty in the art of forensic sketching is that much of it relies on the witness's statements and descriptions. So the artist must be able to relate with this person who may be distraught after what they've been seeing and traumatized, and they have to find a way to interview them and interpret their descriptions. That has to be so difficult. I don't think that I could be able to do that. I'm also not a good artist. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good at doodling little Bob's Burgers sketches on notepads for you. Yes, and me for you, and even those I trace. <laughs> I'm good at painting. <laughs> I but trace yeah, them off the computer. <laughs> I trace them. <laughs> Careers in forensic sketching are currently threatened by the advent of computer software that mainly does the whole job for them. Although New York and Los Angeles have sketch artists on staff full time, but many other cities around don't. I know that we don't have a sketch artist. I've never yeah. really seen the need for it either. But I guess we don't really right. see that firsthand because we don't directly work with police all the time. Right, right. So back to the episode. Jake, Boyle, and Diaz are at the DOA's apartment. The body's on the floor covered with a plastic tarp. Police are also on scene, and one of the officers tells the background of the individual. She says the name, that he's a 58-year-old male, he's married, no children, and that the wife found him this morning. Boyle asks if there's any signs of forced entry or signs of struggle. There were signs of neither. Jake, who if 
Uh, if you've never watched Brooklyn Nine Nine, has a major issue with taking orders from authority. Mm-hmm. Also, if you've never watched Brooklyn Nine Nine, highly recommend watching Brooklyn Nine Nine. It's a great watch. So funny. It's so good. So Jake jumps in on Boyle's case and basically takes over. He says that he's calling it a natural death. The victim is very much overweight. There's heart medicine on the counter, a home defibrillator on the wall, and a frequent customer gift basket from a cardiac wing from a nearby hospital. This is a pretty accurate scene description because our deputy coroners use a lot of the items that they find on scene as evidence to further make like their final opinion on what they want to determine cause of death to be. Jake proceeds to boss Boyle and Diaz around, even though Boyle is the primary on the case. Boyle is interviewing the wife of the victim. She says that they had a planned cruise vacation coming up in a few weeks. While Boyle is talking to the wife, Jake notices that a new woman has come into the scene and immediately goes up to her as she's doing her investigation. We find out that her name is Dr. Rossi and that she's the new medical examiner. Jake, obviously interested in the doctor, starts conversation up. Uh, Back at the precinct, Holt asks for an update on the case. Boyle says that it appears to be natural causes, but they'll know more when the autopsy results are in, and that Jake has volunteered to follow up with the ME. Uh, That's probably just because he wants to talk to her more. Cutting right to the next scene, Jake and Dr. Rossi are out on a lunch date instead of her performing the autopsy. Now, I don't know the exact timeline, but the autopsy was supposed to be performed the day after the initial finding of the body. So I think now it's been two days since the scene. Boyle is asking Jake where the autopsy report is since he was doing all the follow-up, and he says that she probably just got busy with work not mentioning that they went on a date and that the autopsy was not completed yesterday. Jake is talking to Amy and Rosa about his date, and he thinks that the Emmy may be a little bit too obsessed with her job. Now it starts to get a little weird here. She might possibly be into necrophilia, which is disgusting, but that's basically where the perpetrator gets sexual pleasure in having sex with the I dead. I get so grossed out. <laughs> which is just disgusting to think about. And she puts ice on Jake's lips no. and she goes, I like him cold. Ugh, that's disgusting. <laughs> Stop but then it. she also talked about opening his chest and she'd love to like crack it open and get her hands all over his organs. And she'd wonder how much his appendix weighs. So, first red flag, because we don't weigh the appendix unless it's, like, an infant case. <laughs> yeah. And in most of the cases that we've worked on, we just check to see if the appendix is there or not to be able to be removed. Mm-hmm. But honestly, the appendix tells us nothing about the overall case. There's a lot of different red flags for this scene. Not all forensics related, though. But there were a lot of red yeah. flags for Jake to not date this woman. <laughs> This whole woman is a red flag. (laughs) She goes to feel the appendix and she says it's inflamed. Another red flag. Like, we don't feel for an inflamed appendix in a dead person because you wouldn't be able to feel that. Uh, In a living person, if you feel the lower right side of the abdomen and gently push on the area, it'll feel tender and painful and that may be a sign of appendicitis. So Jake also flips back and forth between calling Dr. Rossi a medical examiner and a coroner. So this is another red flag because a medical examiner is very different from a coroner. A coroner is an elected position and this person does not need to have medical training, whereas a medical examiner is an appointed person and they have board certification in a medical specialty. The medical examiner is typically the forensic pathologist who performs the autopsy and writes the autopsy report. They will be the ones who help determine cause of death from a medical standpoint, whereas coroners will help determine cause of death by doing 
doing things like performing the death investigation at the scene, interviewing witnesses, finding medical records, and contacting the family. Back in the office, Captain Holt is looking for the autopsy report on the DOA, and the report is still not in. It's only been about two days now, I think, since the initial scene. And this is a little inaccurate because normally an autopsy report takes a month or so before it's completed. So Jake eagerly speaks up and says that he'll go to the medical examiner's office to see what's up with the report. Boyle starts going over the interviews and something sticks out to him. The wife said that they were going on a cruise together next month. He pulled up her credit card bill and it showed that she had only bought one ticket for the cruise. So either the wife is lying or she knew that her husband was going to die. Meanwhile, it's been an hour and a half since Jake went to the Emmy's office and Rosa suggests that she and Boyle go to see what's holding him up. At the Emmy's office, they go into the morgue where we see a full wall of individual pull-out fridges that hold bodies. You know what they are. You see them in all the movies and shows like this. They portray (laughs) every morgue to have this. Yes, and I don't know what other morgues look like, in our area but in our morgue we just have a giant cooler and a freezer that we put bodies on on tables we don't have a cool wall where we can just pull bodies out of although that would be aesthetically pleasing yeah i've never seen that in real life i've seen it in haunted houses i haven't seen it in an actual functioning morgue so they open one of these doors to find jake hiding inside so cue me hyperventilating and having flashbacks to episode three of this podcast where i figured out that being trapped in small places and or being buried alive was probably my worst fear maybe we're learning that we're claustrophobic too i think that's what i'm really coming to learn (laughs) i'm really i'm learning a lot about myself in this podcast so Boyle and Rosa obviously find out that Jake has been seeing the new Emmy, and Jake apologizes for slowing down the autopsy results, but says that everyone knows his natural causes, so it's not a big deal. Then Boyle chimes in and says that he thinks it could be a murder now with the new information that they gathered. Jake asks the Emmy to perform the autopsy right now. She says with a body this size, she'd need an assistant, who she just gave the rest of the afternoon off. So Jake volunteers to step in and assist on the autopsy. We don't see the body cavity open, we just see the body covered up with blue chucks, which are these type of absorbent medical pads that we actually do use in our office. And it's also covered in a sheet. But Dr. Rossi and Jake are wearing PPE. It was quite shocking. So they got that right. Like most of the shows don't. And we do even see a whiteboard with a body diagram on the wall for organ weights. So Dr. Rossi asks Jake to hold open the chest cavity for her. She looks in the chest cavity and says that there are signs of stress in the heart, but that's not surprising to find due to his health and medical history. She then looks at the stomach lining, but mind you, she hasn't taken anything out of the body or even opened up the stomach. She then guides Jake's hand to take out what I think was supposed to be the stomach, but it looks more like a liver to me. After rewatching the scene, she may have been making Jake take out the spleen because she tells him to scoop around the stomach, which is where you would find the spleen. However, whatever he takes out of this person definitely has the shape of a liver to me. But if we give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe it was just supposed to be a very large spleen rather than a pretty small liver. Overall, all of this is a red flag because she doesn't even have a scalpel. They never have any instruments. I know. I, it's probably because it's a comedy show and they can't be too They can't be graphic. too graphic I don't or know. bloody with it. Yeah. They're supposed to be looking into a fully open chest cavity and there's no blood anywhere. No it's blood. It's totally so clean. clean. I wish never we seen. were that clean. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've never seen an exam that clean. Maybe we need to take notes. <laughs> I know. Maybe maybe that's the secret, not using tools, the cleanest autopsy. <laughs> 
And you can't access the organs fully unless you actually take the organs out of the body. So in reality, all of the organs aren't just free-floating around for someone to scoop out of you without any tools. You have to cut them out. And there are a few different methods for dissection. The one that Jess and I are most familiar with is called Virchow's method, which is taking out each individual organ for the pathologist to analyze. However, there is another method that we have been taught called Rokotansky's method. This method is also called the N-block method and involves taking out all of the internal organs from the tongue to the rectum in one giant block, and they all stay connected. And from there, the pathologist would inspect and dissect whatever organs they need to look at on the autopsy table. I personally prefer to do Virchow's organ-by-organ method. Yeah, I'm way more comfortable that's with just that method than the other. That's a personal preference for me, and that's what, the one I've done the most, so I think it's just the one I'm most familiar with. I don't think I've actually... I've I've been shown how to do Rokotansky's, but I don't think I've ever actually... I've only done it once. It's interesting to learn and and to see. Back to the show, Dr. Rossi says that this is one of the most unhealthy bodies she's ever seen, and that it's like cutting into a big overstuffed ravioli. (laughs) Love the imagery. And I thought this was funny because we do make a lot of food references while at work. Which I guess people outside of the industry wouldn't appreciate. We also, we have a bunch of interns and people who come to shadow autopsies quite often. And when we make those food references, I just feel like we ruin that food for everybody. Oh, for sure. There's definitely been some times when someone who is shadowing an autopsy was like, well, can't eat that again. Like, oh, sorry. I didn't even think. Didn't mean to ruin it for you. Dr. Rossi then pulls out what are supposed to be intestines but they look more like sausages, another food reference, or a rubber hose of some kind. She squeezes the intestines and you can hear air releasing from the quote-unquote large intestine. She says that they call this the death bubble, and I'm going to give this a red flag, because I think that's something made up for TV. I couldn't find anything about death bubble. I tried so hard to look it up, and I got nothing. I googled death bubble autopsy, and it literally just gave me the episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But if anybody else has heard of a death bubble outside of Please let me know. Let me know. I'm very curious. But what we think they based this off of is a large bowel obstruction, which occurs when a tumor, scar tissue, or something else is blocking the large intestine. So gas and stool will build up and the intestine may rupture. So she hands Jake a giant red bag and says, these are the stomach contents. And realistically, a bag of that size... We would use, but we wouldn't use it for stomach contents. We'd use it for clothing or something else. But yeah, we know this is the point of the joke. They were saying that he had a lot in his stomach. She then says there's scarring on the liver. And she says that the cause of death is likely ingestion of poison. So we will give this a green flag because it is true that your liver is one of the first organs exposed to ingested substances. And the liver is a major metabolizing organ. This episode ends with Boyle arresting the wife for killing her husband with poison. We found a true case of... Of a poisoning, and this is the case of Stacy Castor. This information was found on her Wikipedia page, which will be listed in our show notes. Stacy Ruth Castor was an American convicted murderer from Weeds Point, New York. The story made national news, and Castor was subsequently named the Black Widow by media outlets. In late 1999, Michael Wallace, her first husband, was feeling intermittently ill. As his inexplicable sickness persisted over the holiday season, his family encouraged him to seek medical care, but he died in early 2000 before he could. Their daughter, Ashley, was 12 at the time and had been alone with him. She blamed herself for the death. She noticed his ill appearance that day, but said nothing of it. 
Physicians told Castor that her husband had died of a heart attack, although Wallace's sister was skeptical and requested an autopsy. Castor refused, saying that she believed the doctors were correct. In 2003, Stacy married David Castor, and in August of 2005, at 2 p.m., Stacy called her local sheriff's office to tell them that her husband had locked himself in their bathroom for a day following an argument and was not responding to his cell phone. When he did not appear at their shared workplace, she became worried. She claimed he was depressed and unable to get a response, a sergeant kicked in the door and found David lying dead. Among the items near the body were a container of antifreeze, and a glass half full of bright green liquid. A coroner reported that David had committed suicide through a self-administered lethal dose of antifreeze. But when police found Stacy's fingerprints on that antifreeze glass and located a turkey baster that had David's DNA on the tip, they began to suspect that Stacy had engineered her husband's death. Oh my god. That's insane. That's dark. They believed Castor had used the turkey baster to force feed her husband once he became too physically weak. Oh, force feeding with a turkey baster is what got me. The detectives on the case ordered wiretapings on Castor's house. They listened in on phone calls for any unusual conversations. In addition, they set up cameras overlooking the house and the grave sites of both her husbands, who were buried side by side at her request which is also very weird. That is odd. Detectives reasoned that if Castor truly, genuinely loved her late husband, that she would eventually visit the gravesite. Castor, however, never visited. The investigators soon felt the only way to prove Castor was responsible for both homicides was to have Wallace's body exhumed. A toxicology screening ruled that Wallace had also been killed through antifreeze poisoning. Castor had additionally attempted to kill her daughter, Ashley, while they were at their family home in Liverpool. As they were having a drink, Ashley said that her mother offered her a nasty-tasting drink that she first refused but eventually drank. 17 hours later, Ashley was found in a comatose state on her bed by her younger sister, Bree Wallace. So Bree demanded that help be sought and Castor made the 911 call. Ashley's sister left her side for a moment and when she returned, she found a suicide note by Ashley. The note appeared to be Ashley's quote-unquote murder confession in which she admits to having killed her father and stepfather. Castor quickly took the note from the sister and later gave it to the paramedics. The tests revealed that potentially fatal painkillers were found in Ashley's system and that she most likely would have died if had not been taken to the hospital right away. So when Ashley woke up, she told the officers that she, in fact, did not write this note. And in 2007, Castor was arrested for second-degree murder in David's death and for attempting to murder Ashley and frame her for the murders of both David and Wallace. In 2009, she was found guilty of intentionally poisoning her then-husband, David Castor, with antifreeze in 2005 and attempting to murder her daughter Ashley with crushed up pills mixed in with vodka, orange juice, and Sprite in 2007. In addition, she is suspected to have murdered her first husband, Michael Wallace, in 2000. Castor was placed in Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in Bedford Hills, New York. Even with credit time served, her earliest possible release date would have been June 15th, 2055. However, she was found dead in her cell on the morning of June 11th, 2016. It was not immediately apparent of how she died, and the manner of her death is listed as undetermined. It was later determined by the DA's office 
that Caster died of a heart attack with no evidence of suicide or foul play. That is wild. And I know I said last week that it's always the boyfriend or husband, but clearly now it can also be the wife or the spouse. Always the spouse. It's always the people closest to the victim, which is just so scary. Yeah, for sure. I can't believe she tried to frame her daughter for it all, too. She had two daughters. If the first daughter, her killing was successful, would she then have gone after the second daughter until they were all dead? I don't know. That is crazy. So moving into the second episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, we'll be dissecting the episode titled The Crime Scene. Rosa and Jake are out investigating a scene. There is blood everywhere, and forensic techs are in full Tyvek suits gathering evidence, and we see those classic yellow number cards that you see in all the crime scene shows and at actual crime scenes in various spots around the room. An officer says that a Roomba vacuum was running when the team got there and it had smeared blood all over the apartment, compromising the scene. The victim was an investigative reporter who was investigating chicken farming. The boss called the police when he didn't show up for work. Lastly, the officer says the apartment was locked from the inside and that the alarm system was still armed. They checked surveillance cameras and no one was seen going in or out of the apartment. The victim came home from work. The only person to approach the doorway was a delivery guy, but the delivery guy never even entered the apartment. Rosa comments on the smell of the apartment and the crime scene investigator walks in, saying that's because of the heat wave speeding up body decomp. So green flag for this, because as we've mentioned on previous podcast episodes, heat accelerates decomposition while cold temperatures decelerate decomposition. Jake says that since the heat is causing the body to decomp, that they should turn on the AC. The CSI tech says that the air conditioning would kick up all kinds of dust particles that could disrupt evidence that they have. Jake and Rosa go over their first impressions of the scene. There is a cast off blood spatter pattern on the far wall suggesting an upward knife slice. This is a green flag because this type of pattern is seen when an object is swung in an arc motion and flings blood onto a nearby surface. There are wounds on the victim's back that suggest that he didn't see the killer coming. The victim's laptop, wallet, and keys were all in plain sight, and there's no sign of forced entry, so robbery is ruled out. They come to the assumption that the killer was waiting for the victim inside his apartment. On day two of the scene investigation, the autopsy results show that the victim was stabbed 30 times. The coroner says that this puts the time of death between 6 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. on Sunday night. Red flag here because the coroner or medical examiner doesn't actually predict time of death since all the findings are observational based. They can estimate as best they can, but they can't tell the exact time when a victim died. There's no DNA matches or traces of hair and no fingerprints. The CSI tech goes on to say that they tested the blood and that the spatter in one section belongs to the victim, but another section belongs to a second individual and another portion to a third person. It is possible to differentiate blood samples because your blood has certain antibodies, which is how you get your blood type. You can test and see if the blood found at the scene belonged to the victim. If not, there's a possibility that a crime has been committed. On day three, Peralta tracked down the delivery guy. They ask if he saw anything suspicious. The delivery guy says that he delivered the food at 6.40 p.m. and that he didn't go inside the apartment. He says he only saw and heard the one guy inside. They ask if the delivery guy would be able to go inside and see if anything appears different to him. They open the door and immediately, this poor guy 
is terrified and gets this awful scream out. I loved this part because Jake looks at Rosa and was like, do you think our job affects our souls and how we form relationships with others? And she's like, oh yeah, definitely. And I was watching this with my boyfriend and as soon as they said that line, he turned and looked at me and I was like, hey. We almost get numb to seeing what we see every day too and we don't think anything of it and then we see normal people and they don't react the same way as us. Yeah. But yeah, we dissociate ourselves from the horrible things so we're able to do our job. I was going to say, you kind of have to. Yeah, especially in this line of work. Jake realizes that the victim was wearing a smartwatch and that it tracks your heart rate. So he goes to get the victim's phone to see the exact moment that his heart stopped. His heart stopped at 6.03 p.m. The food wasn't ordered until 6.16, which means that the robber ordered the food and the delivery guy actually talked to the murderer. Now they need to get this delivery guy in front of a sketch artist so he can describe the man that he saw. But this guy doesn't quite remember what he saw. So the artist's rendition of the perpetrator is very unreliable. They don't have any leads to go off of, and our timeline goes from day 5 to day 50. And then this case was handed over to the major crimes department since Jake and Rosa hadn't come up with anything. Jake becomes so obsessed with this case, he's recreated it multiple times, even in his own apartment, and at the precinct, and at a bar with food. With ketchup. And on day 53, Major Crimes has now released the scene and cleaned up the apartment. Jake and Rosa decide to take one last look inside, and they hear a strange noise. They hear the air conditioning running, which hadn't been on in the 53 days since they started their investigation. They look inside the vent and find empty water bottles and food wrappers, so they never saw the killer leave the apartment because he never left. He waited for the body to be discovered and then snuck out sometime after that. So, they theorize that the killer disguised himself by wearing a Tyvek suit that covered his face when the forensic techs were there, and that's how he left the apartment. The CSI tech and the detectives look at the security footage from that first day, and they actually see the killer on the footage dressed up as part of the forensics team getting out of the apartment. They get a glimpse of the killer's face and bring him into the precinct. Now, you're wondering how the killer did it. So was I. And Jake and Rosa told us everything. The guy snuck into the apartment during a party several nights earlier and hid inside the vent for three days and then killed the victim. Oh my god, more hiding in small places. I'm just very claustrophobic at this point. (laughs) Why? (laughs) He spilled bags of blood that he stole from a blood bank and turned on the Roomba vacuum so the scene would be as messy as possible, meaning that extra forensic techs would be there, allowing the killer to sneak out using a hazard suit that he bought online two weeks before he committed the crime. This man was hired by the chicken farmer who the victim was doing his investigative report on. And that's how that episode ends. That was a good one. Both of these are really good. I just love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I really like that episode. I just love Brooklyn Nine. Anything Mike Sure creates or writes on, it's going to be gold. So that is the end of our episode. We tallied a total of four green flags and six red flags. So in our opinion, Brooklyn Nine-Nine does not pass in terms of forensic accuracy. But we did not expect this show to get a lot right, but it's one of our favorite comedies. So we thought it would just be a fun episode to get into. If you enjoy our podcast, share it with friends, family, and coworkers. We'd love to grow our platform here. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at InsideTheMorgPod and send us all your episode recommendations at InsideTheMorgPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with a brand new dissection. Bye. Bye.